Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, hello. Welcome to Weave Your Bliss. This is Paula. I'm so glad you're here. If you're new, this is a space where we talk about business, living in your purpose, making more money, doing what you love, and all tied in with the astrology and how that can help you amplify. So welcome, welcome. Today, I have an incredible interview with Adela Bustamante, who is an Ayurvedic practitioner and wellness coach living in Los Angeles, California. She was born and raised in Quito, Ecuador, and she defines her practice as being a cultural bridge that focuses on the interconnectedness of all things. And she describes herself as a modern medicine woman and wisdom keeper, which we talk about in this episode. This episode is lit. I want to use the fire emoji here. We had so much fun talking. We talked about plant medicine. We talked about cultural appropriation. So many of you asked me about that. And so it's wonderful to have Adela's perspective here. In addition, we talk about how she works with Ayurveda and plant medicine together, what that even looks like and microdosing. We talk about her journey to working with plant medicine, which you will not want to miss. Before we jump in, I just want to remind you to Make sure that you are not missing any of my business and astrology insight by joining me on Instagram at Weave Your Bliss and also in my Facebook group, which is called the Cosmic Business Salon. Both of those links are in the show notes. Connect there. There's different content in each space. In addition to that, you can get my free mini course, which is called The Planets and Your Business by going to weaveyourbliss.com. Click on the top of the page, you'll get connected, and that will give you 10 mini episodes about each planet with a little intro. And it gives you some insight into these planetary flavors (laughs) and how they influence your life and business. And you can also get my 2023 astrology guidebook, which you can drop right into your Google calendar for my handpicked lay low and auspicious dates for the upcoming year, right at your fingertips including the major transits and what they mean for your business. 100% of the profits go to Asha Deep School in Varanasi and the Indigenous Environmental Network. Okay, let's get into this interview with Adela Bustamante. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Adela. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paula. So excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you on. It's been a long time coming. I'm such a fan of your work and love following you on Instagram, just seeing what you're up to. So I'm excited to have you here. (laughs) Oh my God. Likewise. Absolutely. I follow you. I love the advice and everything that you have to offer. So beautiful. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I usually start by asking people about their journey. You know, I noted on the bio that you sent me that you call yourself a modern medicine woman. And I think that's so cool. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and and talk about your journey to becoming a modern medicine woman. Absolutely. And I get a little 
goosebumps when I hear that modern medicine woman. It almost sounds a little snobbish, but I'll tell you a little bit about my story. And it's kind of a long story, lots of detours for sure. I'm originally from Ecuador, from Quito, which is a city high in the Andes. Uh, I think it's like 9,000 feet altitude, which makes me have a very big heart. And I think my introduction to healing and holistic uh, medicine came basically in the form of plant medicine in my teens. And this might, might sound shocking for many people, but I was very lucky to come from a family that was very progressive in their thinking, very open-minded and not spiritual in the least. Both my parents are atheists, but very artistic, intellectuals, open to inquiry. So very open-minded in a sense, you know, so that kind of served as a foundation for being able to explore and to figure out who I was going to be. Part of what I do right now is this idea that I had to deal with feeling like my foot was in one one part of the map and my other foot in another part of the map. Like growing up in an atheistic home, but with a huge influence from my grandparents that were deeply Catholic. So while at home, I was like, it was very stoic, the position of my parents in existence of deities and almost like very materialistic, simplistic, no nonsense approach to life and death. And at the same time, my grandparents, four of them, like super religious, they would take me to church and they taught me how to pray. And so I was kind of like torn in between these two worlds. And I feel like that's kind of been the theme in my life. I, um, I resonate with that a lot because my dad is also an yeah. atheist and my mom is more, she's always taken me to church and like she believes. So <laughs> yeah. Did you end up loving both worlds? Because that's what happened to me. I take like the beauty of prayer and that devotion from my grandparents. And then also, you know, my, my parents' scientific approach, you know, and it, it kind of helped me a lot. So as I was saying, when I was 15 years old, I went to my first um, ceremony of medicine. This was with Mama Yawaska. And I was invited by my best friend, Gabby who is now a beautiful medicine woman. We grew up together since first grade. And so I trusted her fully. My family knew her family. So she invited me to this first ceremony ever. And, and, and we were in high school. This was a serious thing. <laughs> and so what happened is this, I think this was around the year 1994. And this is an important year because I don't know in America, in, in the US, if anything was kind of like happening the way that it was happening in South America or, or Central America. It was the 500 years of colonization by the Spaniards. It was going to be this big celebration, you know, about the discovery, the supposed discovery of America. And so there was a lot of movement in my country by the indigenous populations coming up 1994, uh, October. And keep in mind that in my country is 60% indigenous population. So this idea that the 500 years of colonization by the Spaniards was approaching started triggering a lot of movements. No longer was this a big celebration, but it became more of movement towards kind of like a, a proclamation, a reclaiming of, of our sovereignty, of our authentic ways of being, kind of an opportunity to reclaim our identity as people. And um, instead of subjecting our, our identities to the, the invaders 500 years ago, right? So all these movements are happening. There's this man. He, his name is Aurelio Diaz. 
He is a Mexican, uh, an artist who is now the custodian and founder and leader of what is now known as the sacred fire of Itzachilatla. He created what is known as the Red Path. I don't know if you heard of this big, big movement. He comes to Ecuador uh, in that year with this big dream. And in his dream was about the prophecy of the condor and the eagle. I don't know if you've heard of this. But you can talk so about the it. Prophecy, so for those who don't yeah. know, please do share. <laughs> so the prophecy of the condor and the eagle is a, it's a Native American dream. Okay. And, and he kind of gave it a shape. And it's this idea of the fusion of North American and South American ancestral knowledge. Groups of the North and groups of the South as guardians and sacred holders of traditions, the Taitas and the Mamas, coming together. The Eagle in the North and the Condor of the South. So Aurelio comes down with this great proposition, greatly informed. He is a shaman and he is a, a very respected man. And his initiative arrives in, in South America and starts moving people a lot. So then I'm in my teens, I'm in high school. My best friend and her mother become part of this tribe. They get very much involved in this group in learning the ancestral ways and the visions of the North and the visions of the South. And this idea of remembering, remembering is a big word, that we are all sons and daughters of the Pachamama. And it's also part of the Lakota system of belief. It's, it's like, you know, it's like what he created is this mix of the medicine wheel meets the Tawantinsuyo. The Tawantinsuyo is, is a Quechua word. Quechua is the, the language from the, the original people of Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. So the Tawantinsuyo was the empire of the Incas, the most important empire in South America. The idea is uniting these ancient knowledges and traditions. And so he starts creating this big, beautiful system that now has chapters all over the world. It grew immensely. So I start sharing time with these people and learning and Gabi is taking me to the mascal and ceremonies and and I'm learning with this crowd and trying to find my way and trying to find my relationship with these technologies. But then, then comes my first big detour. <laughs> first, before that, I actually created a, a great relationship. I was very lucky to create a great relationship with one very special plant spirit. This is uh, the San Pedro cactus, that we call it the Aguacoya, or, or in Peru, it's called the Huachuma. I met this beautiful spirit in, when I was around 18 or 19, and he changed my life completely. He showed me my path and I have very, a very special affinity to this beautiful cactus medicine. <laughs> and so I met the spirit, I created a relationship, but then I fell in love and love took me in a complete different direction. <laughs> so that's how I came to this country. And that's one big detour in my life where now a gap where I went to school, I studied film and I went to work in the film industry here for many, many years. And so there was no, no, um, nothing about service, healing, spiritual practices, none of that. It was a good, I want to say 10 years of me just working in photography and living my life in a completely different way until I hit a big bump on the road in my life which made me question everything. Um, big, um, big crisis, you know. Transformation through crisis is a theme also in my life, I think. And that's when Ayurveda came to the rescue. I, I had my daughters. Yoga, yoga also came before Ayurveda, actually, and kind of started informing me and, and make me very curious about coming back to those center of practices that 
were teaching me more about me and my purpose and what is my contribution instead of just kind of doing the daily grind of work and life and that's it. So I, I went and I started started studying Ayurveda um, and I fell in love completely. Wow, it, it like changed everything. And, and I started slowly discovering and peeling layers. And then I went on to study yoga and pranayama, actually even Vedic astrology. We share the same mentor. Yeah. And when I met um, you, so when I first, you know, we got to know each other through the internet, you were an Ayurvedic practitioner. Primarily, I saw, you know, you uh-huh. sharing about that and you joined my program and did some of the work inside of your magnetic blueprint. Through that work, I started to learn that you're doing work with plant medicine. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear you talk a little bit about that process and like how, how did that come yeah, up? Yes. How did those two things come together and how do, how do those two things merge for you? Like, how do they, how do they work together? Uh, through beautiful synchronicity because ayahuasca came back to my life. I was deep into Ayurveda and my connection to India and the Vedas and these beautiful, wonderful traditions and now learning and helping people. And then, knock, knock, ayahuasca came here. <laughs> and, and it was crazy, um, Paula, like those things that happened that you don't know, oh my gosh, how, uh, wow, something was dormant and then it was the right time. And it's funny because, yes, when, when I worked with you, I remember you saying that part of my mission or my dharma is to come back to where I come from and to to really remember who I am and bring that into the forefront of my my contribution, my service. And so and and you saying that, oh my gosh, like it was like ding the light went off. And um Mama Ayahuasca came back and it kind of reframed the whole dream. And it gave this, the, the Ayurveda, everything, it gave it a heart. It unified everything because it made me see that I don't necessarily only have to work with a tradition that I love and respect so much, but I can also incorporate the roots of where I come from, the Andean cosmovision. As I start studying more and more about my own lineage, I start realizing how Ayurveda and the Andean cosmovision can really complement each other and they they, they speak the same language. It's, it's so beautiful. They're both rooted in natural living, in tradition, in ritual, in understanding the basic forces of nature, the elements as building blocks of who we are, getting back to, to Mother Earth, to the Pachamama, allowing self-inquiry, self-examination, you know, learning that you can be your own healer. Tuning into nature, tuning into what is sacred, being learning to be in good relationship, you know, with the elements. That's the foundation of our stability, of, of our health in life, I think. And that's what also the abuelos tell us, you know, the water element, your memory, your cells, good relationship with the water element is vital. A good relationship with the air element in these modern times that we're all spacey. A good relationship with the earth element in these chaotic, unstable times that we live in. The idea also, I, I, I find that the Andean cosmovision really embodies the complementary of opposites, the fusion of opposites, like, you know, female men, Taita Sun, Taita Inti, which is the sun, and Mama Kija, the moon, Grandmother Moon. Ayurveda tells us that to heal ourselves, we need to use complementary forces. So it's beautiful. It's kind of like it started, everything started kind of coming together for me and understanding how beautiful they can work together, Ayurveda and my own lineage, my own traditions, you know. And also you think 
the Ayurveda of the Vedas, as we know it in the classical text, it was rooted in shamanic practices. The shaman healing, channeling the imbalance of the patient, working with the powers of nature, with the subtle energies, with the plant allies, with song and chant. That's a big one also for the lineage where I come from. And even the position of the planets assisting healing. So yeah, so then I, I find that both traditions at the core are self-awareness and empowerment. The idea that you have rights and you have responsibilities. You have to remember that you, you have the right to be happy and the responsibility. More than your rights and privileges, you have responsibilities to really understand who you are to understand where contentment and happiness can really come from and, and being in the present moment. It's a very legitimate way to be happy, elevating rituals and, and the power of realization, the power of creation, the power to be. You know, the abuelos talk a lot about the power, el poder. And I think in Ayurveda also we talk about the power to fulfill the the four aims of life, your, your, your dharma, kama, Harta and, and moksha, the, I could see like, you know, your dharma, what are you here to do? You're here no, for no coincidence. You're here because you have a calling and you need to have a contribution. I think that's the same that Abuelos told us. Your kama, you have the right to enjoy life. That's important. And your responsibility comes in your arta is of sustain and support yourself and your progeny. And then at the end, where moksha can come in is that, that liberation, the release, the release from trauma, from suffering, from pain, that return to the land, that your bones will go back to the earth and and your soul might be free or not, or you come back over and over. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thank you for sharing your story, you know, and as you were talking, like you mentioned what I had shared with you, you know, I have your chart here and you gave me permission to oh, yeah. talk a little bit about it. So what's unique about your chart is you have this powerful combination of Mercury and Jupiter across the 410 axis. So for people who do astrology, you know that the fourth is the darkest place in the sky. It's your home area. It has to do with home and teaching. And then the the 10th is your career and it's how you show up out in the world. It's the brightest place in the sky. So we have these two benefics, one being the great teacher, one being the great communicator in exchange across that important access for teaching, for leading, for being in your career and stuff. And both of those are activated right now. So there's a yeah. way that you've been pulled forward as a teacher as a leader, and you've really accepted the invitation to step into your full, this full expression of where you come from and how that can be merged with what you've learned. So does that feel true? <laughs> I love one thing you just said. I love that you said you accepted that invitation, you know, the proposition. Uh, yes, absolutely. And that's where Vedic astrology also came to the rescue, right. <laughs> helping, you know, helping you really shed light into the possibilities. It allows you to see the karmas, but then that invitation is there for how you're going to address them. And sometimes we don't have a lot of choice. Sometimes we have to live through things that are uncomfortable, but sometimes we're like, yeah, there's some wiggle rope and we can be like, okay, am I doing this or I'm not doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely that resonates completely and, and, and it has given me so much courage, you know, to really do what I'm doing right now. Because I think before even looking at my chart, I was full of doubt. 
am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? I, f- I feel it in my heart that it's the right place, but is it really the right place? Am I supposed to be doing this? And, and I, f- I feel like it comes and goes, you know, this the doubt and the fear, but that's, that's just a human expression. But just seeing it in my chart, it helps a lot. It's interesting too, because you are one of the most like grounded and calm people. And yet you're in your Rahu period, you know, and so for those out there who are also in the Rahu period, it is possible. Like I think what Adela has done really nice, done really well is like, really dove into Ayurveda and use those tools to help control Vata. So for those of you who don't know, that's the mobile force in the body. When you're in a Rahu period, whether it's a major period, a secondary period or a tertiary period, There are all three. For those who don't know, there are moments where you'll just feel crazy and you'll notice, oh, I'm in a Rahu tertiary period. You've got to do more to control Vata. You've got to do less intense, you know, movement in your physical life. You have to work less. You have to rest more, you know? And I think also this relates to plant medicine. So when we see the nodes in a major placement in a chart, that means that a person may have more of a proclivity towards working with kind of innovative or like you use the word technologies, which I really like for these types of medicines because they're indigenous technologies that were used to help people transcend. Right. And so similarly, like they're, they are a little bit outside the box for the mainstream of what we are as Western humans (laughs) in this world. So that Rahu energy, when we use it in an appropriate way towards using these technologies in a really grounded way, maybe the Ayurveda is helping with that, (laughs) that helps the Rahu energy move appropriately in our body so that we can actually be grounded in these periods where we normally wouldn't be. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not only living my Rahu period, but I have Rahu in the first house. I'm going to be haunted by Rahu for all my life. And so (laughs) it's just what's helped me is to just make friends with that idea. Really make friends with Rahu because it's not going anywhere. And I do have a great deal of anxiety, but definitely plant medicine and the work that I do in Ayurveda has given me the tools to find structure and kind of ground myself. There is definitely a before and after and people that know me could tell you that. There is a before and after Ayurveda and, and, and within the same Rahu period. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, we're all in our hero journeys. And I think that this idea of the plant medicine and, and, and these combined practices are helping me a lot modify tendencies and deal with my blind spots and help modify my, my emotional inter- energy, you know, because yeah, it can go completely out of control, but I feel that I have been more able to up level that that energy and it's never fully under control because I am somebody that can get pretty restless very quickly and then I kind of want to do everything at the same time and I have a really hard time resting slowing down (laughs) I want to take it all in right now yeah I mean and the best condition of of Rahu in the first is curiosity you're hungry for the human experience and that's a beautiful thing exactly it's just about being aware right and and you're aware you're you're aware of it and so you can I am now yes it's taking me many many years yes I am aware now but but before if you knew me before I think one of the biggest descriptions people would pin on me was this restless spirit like I always have to be doing something trying something always interested in extremes and 
I had a difficult relationship with Father Time. I can be present, but I don't like the idea of wasting my time. It scares me. I think time is so precious. And then I feel like the urge to do something or uh, push boundaries or there's this agitation inside. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because I really want to build a business that has space in it. And, and then when I get uh-huh. into the space, I'm like, now what? <laughs> but the truth is that that space is really rich, you know, and I think these plant medicines help us to sort of untie the knots around time and our experience of time so that we can understand how powerful it is when we do create space for like for me in my business, I know if I create space, ideas come in, flow comes in, creativity comes in, my content is richer I kind of sense what needs to be done right now. And if I don't have that space where I'm literally allowing whatever to happen, then I, and I'm like filling it, I start getting batty. And it's that like Rahu energy that gets kicked up and I, I, my Vata is disturbed and I need to just like literally lay down. (laughs) My body is like, no, Mm -hmm. we're not going to do this right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. You know, I, I get the zoomies <laughs> just like, oh, like my, dog. my tail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, the space is huge. You, we, we don't even realize what does that even mean? You know, but yeah, this idea of like creating space is something that we don't, we don't even use that. It's like some people would ask, what does that even mean? I have to do, I have to survive. I have to keep going. No, no, you, you won't be able to survive and be any productive if you don't allow yourself to rest and make space for for your needs and for, for what needs to happen. Absolutely. I would love for you to talk like more, like practically speaking, how do you integrate these two modalities? Like the Andean Cosmovision plant medicine with Ayurveda? What does that look like when you're working with somebody? Well, I have an Ayurvedic practice. And that doesn't necessarily go all the time with the Indian Cosmovision because it depends on, on, on what my client needs. Many times it's just going to be learning new routines uh, to integrate in life or breathing techniques, or we work with herbs and treatments and body work. But I feel like when there's a space to work with a client with both traditions, kind of the healing gets amplified and we can really go into what is very hot right now. And it's this idea of trauma, shadow work. Through Ayurveda and the Indian Cosmovision, we can recognize that we are all connected, right? That we come from the same thread, that the pain, the illness, the disease is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to understand something that is that the pain is trying to teach us. And I think our abuelos, as much as Ayurveda and, and many Vedic sciences, and, and, and also right now, what is really hard is like positive psychology is uniting all these and recognizing that shadow work is incredibly important, that we need to address trauma because no person that walks the earth right now is free of trauma. And as happy and as well adjusted as we may think we are, I think we all and I even include my poor children, we all fall somewhere on the trauma spectrum. So it's imperative as a society that we start looking at that. And I think Ayurveda helps us and the Indian Cosmovision helps us to look into childhood trauma, in utero trauma, ancestral trauma, and the, the master teachers, the plants, 
really gives us the the context and the tools to find the opportunity of being your own healer. So many, many people that come to my retreats become clients in my Ayurvedic practice. It just feeds each other. You know, when I have a retreat of plant medicine, I offer an Ayurvedic consultation. Always it comes with the whole package. So we before we sit together and I learn about you. That's kind of the beauty of my retreats is that the work that we do is in small groups and it's very personalized. We work really one-on-one. I think it, it's a beautiful thing to teach others to trust the healing, to trust the process. Because these are very old technologies, both modern society really trains us to, to over-intellectualize and accept only what we can see in data, you know, what is scientifically proven. But we miss out on the potential to heal from from these old technologies, from these old traditions that are kind of very broad and teach us how much we are connected and woven from the same thread. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. No. And and like, just also to bring it back down, like you do serve amazing Ayurvedic food also at these retreats. And there's like gentle yoga, I think. Don't you do something like that? Like there's we do. We do. We do some gentle stretches. We do yoga. We do pranayama. We teach like very basic pranayama techniques. We eat very beautiful Ayurvedic dishes. And because we are working more and more with the psilocybin fungi, then we are able more to eat <laughs> a little more in these retreats than if uh, in the past when I was working with Mama Ayahuasca, then I, I couldn't feed you too much because then we work very differently. But in these retreats now, yes, yummy foods. We always have a sound bath. We have um, talks where we discuss Ayurveda and we discuss the cosmovision of the abuelos, of the Andes. Yes. Beautiful. I saw on your website that you also do microdosing with clients. And that's such a hot topic right now. So maybe you can talk a little bit about it, about the kinds of results that you see when you combine that with Ayurveda. And I'm curious, is that a traditional practice in the Andes to use microdosing or is that a modern thing? I don't know. No, this is a modern thing. <laughs> this now this comes from more like in, a, in the therapist kind of context and psychoanalysis. And, and it's basically using subperceptual amounts of plant medicine in kind of like a daily basis in, in different protocols. We don't do it every day. It's the protocol calls for a few days, yes, then you take a break, then you go back again, and you do it for a month, and then you take a break for a couple of weeks. I think it's a wonderful new frontier of work with the teachers, for sure. But it's kind of in diapers right now. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. So I have been working now uh, with microdosing and um, protocols and treatments, and I'm getting beautiful results. I've, I've done it myself quite a bit. And I have now Many, many clients now that are seeing incredible results and, and results in themes of deep depression, addiction, attention deficit disorder. It's kind of really helping people slow down and look at their lives for what, they, for what it is, you know, like not focus on trauma and sadness and grief, but really opening up the heart and shifting minds. And like I said before, this is something that is very new, I think. We still have to be cautious about how we approach the world of microdosing and the legalities of it as well. But I think there's so much hope for what these plants can teach us now in maybe in a more legalized way. And yeah, 
Beautiful. So I, this kind of dovetails what you just said, kind of led us into a question I had for you, which is around cultural appropriation and, and plant medicine, because there's so many people now using this tool and sort of becoming shamans for lack of a better yeah. term. So I'm just wondering <laughs> what thoughts you have about that and how this impacts people like in, in Ecuador and in other countries, you know, the traditional peoples using these medicines. Yes. So this is a big topic. This is a very loaded topic, right? It's very important. And I think that it's also very dynamic right now. So what is cultural appropriation in a sense? It's basically the idea of power and privilege in relation to other cultures, right? It's adopting value symbols, practices from one generally more privileged or powerful culture towards another that is not so powerful and privilege, right? And not sharing, it's, it's not it. sharing the wealth. <laughs> and not sharing the wealth. Exactly. It's, it's this, this culture of extractivism that we live in, exploitation, and transforming a beautiful culture into a product, into a commodity, into a novelty. And that's when it becomes a problem because I, I see now the, the romanticizing of the indigenous spirituality. There's nothing romantic about it. This is a serious thing. <laughs> Something that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years and in the communities um, here, I mean, all over in the Americas, everybody has an indigenous tradition, you know. Plant medicine is very hot. But the thing is, I don't think it's a black and white situation. I, I don't think it's, it's a right or wrong answer because cultural appropriation is happening whether we like it or not. And I think because we live in a global world now, things are moving. Plant medicine is traveling. It's very fluid. It's dynamic. And it wants to come out and it wants to be shared in the world. That I know. I can tell you that. Like these master plants, they want to be known. And so that's a beautiful thing because we haven't even tapped the, the potential for the benefit of society. And ayahuasca is a, is a global phenomenon right now. <laughs> it's a revolution, right? But for me, even for me, I can tell you, you know, I'm not from the Amazon jungle. I'm from the city. I'm a mestizo woman. I'm like half uh, indigenous, half white. Even for me, I have to approach this with integrity, like asking permission, knocking the door with humility and respect. And that's when we talk about how we can borrow cultures, you know, in, a, in an appropriate way, you know, and is basically learning the willingness to learn to take your place and be humble, um, being in right relationship. That's a that's a big one. That means being respectful, being knowledgeable of the plants that you're working with, elevating indigenous voices, because we have so much to gain from indigenous elders and their communities. But yeah, it's, it's very triggering. I, I see a lot of people here holding ceremony and they don't even know how to do it appropriately or serving the plant medicine without ceremony, without any understanding of proper paths and protocols on how, of how to do this or the blessings of permission of how to do this, which is even crazier. And I've seen people that, that are doing this and they get in a lot of trouble. Really bad things can happen. All these neo-shamans, uh, I call them basement shamans, or the DJs also. <laughs> All these DJs that are now sharing the medicine and because they have one experience with ayahuasca, they have a vision that they should be doing the work. And all of a sudden, they're leading ceremony. I mean, I don't judge the insights that you might get from the plant. It's a wonderful thing to create a relationship with these plants. But people might confuse these messages and just jump into thinking that they're shamans. And then you see 
on the social media is like um, a school offering five-week shaman certification program. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? You need to understand the context. You need to understand. You need to go to the stores maybe and learn there. I really encourage people that are interested in, in learning more to listen to the moral compass, to what feels right. Educate yourself. Create a relationship with a plant. Learn about your own ancestral lineage, you know, the medicines from your ancestors too. This is what happened to me. This is exactly my case. I was deep into Ayurveda and then I realized, wait a minute, you know, there's something that actually belongs to me because I don't think it's black and white. I think that the plants really want to reach more and more people. And that's a beautiful thing. But we have to really cultivate um, the respect and the humility to learn where things come from. And, um, and humbleness is the number one thing we work. People that want to become shamans, that, that's, that's the number one teaching in a vision quest, you know? Go and find your your humility. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's helpful, I think, for people to hear too. When you're talking about going and doing a plant medicine ceremony, you have some questions you can ask. <laughs> Who are their teachers, <laughs> right? Where, where's the lineage? Exactly. What's their relationship with yes. this plant, right? So that's really helpful. So this whole podcast is about living in your purpose. So I'm curious for you, what does that mean to live in your purpose? And you talked a little bit about Dharma, but like in your personal experience, maybe, what does that mean to you? I think living my most authentic self, I think means not fragmenting or compartmentalizing myself, but really allowing myself to be all that I can be. And I think that my purpose is not just my work. Being a mom is a huge part of who I am. But also the woman in me, the spiritual in me, the child in me, the fun in me. I think all those parts of me, when they kind of coexist together in harmony, then I feel I'm in my purpose because everything is kind of working in harmony and I can really shine and, and be the best that I can be. And, and I think that there's a many Adelas inside of me. <laughs> so as long as they're kind of... Um, in a central unity <laughs> and they can all express themselves and accept themselves. I think that's my, my, my biggest purpose is just really trying to be a good mother and be a good healer and celebrate life. And as long as they don't betray each other, you know, and then I think that's, then I'm on my purpose because I feel like there's so much about me. I, it's just not one thing that is my purpose, you know? Definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that. So I have a few rapid fire questions for you if you're ready for that. <laughs> okay, shoot. <laughs> so what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? I think my dad, my dad used to say, listen to your gut when you see an opportunity and take that opportunity because he would call it the, the train of opportunity doesn't come all the time. And when you see an opportunity and you trust your gut and your intuition, take that opportunity, even if it comes in disguise or may look painful or too challenging. And I always remember that. I remember that when I was in, in France, very young, and I was on vacation and he called me and he's like, do you want to stay in Europe longer? I was like 18 or something. You can go and study German. I'll help you. And I'm like, what? So that, that was the train. I took a train to Germany to study German in the winter without money, completely clueless. But he put that train in front of me. So he gave me that advice and it kind of always carried with me. I don't know. Beautiful. I'm like, where in Germany were you? Because I lived in Dresden. So I'm like, ah, Erlangen. Okay. Where is that? 
It's the Neo Nunberg. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. So the next question is when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? Oh, okay. So three different emotions. <laughs> I might need three different tools. But I think um, when frustration um, comes, I, I think there's a saying, you do like the eagle. You sometimes get caught up in the little details. You know how the eagle has this incredible eyesight and from far away, he can see like the tiny details and you can see your worry and your grief and your sorrow and your frustration. And yes, it's there. Okay, I see it. But then you do like the eagle and you fly back and then you go far away and you look at the big picture. You look at the grand picture and take a perspective and look at the enormity of what it is to be alive in this moment. And look at your blessings, Avela. <laughs> you know, stay present. Come on. And I think that helps me. Like, put things in perspective. Put things in place. That helps me. That, that kind of, like, gives, it makes me laugh about my own grievances, even, you know? Another thing that I find very helpful in kind of high-stress situations is um it's a very practical tool just some ice water on your face dunk your face in a bowl of ice water and uh, stimulate your um vagal nerve that's like incredible and it works immediately wow do you think a cold plunge yeah. would work work too if you had access to that <laughs> yes oh, yes yes that would be nice okay yeah. so what is your favorite hot beverage you might cringe this is a beverage that <laughs> is typical in where i'm from we drink hot cocoa it's very thick, dark, hot cocoa with cinnamon. And then we put cheese inside. Cheese? Little square pieces of cheese that melts with a hot cocoa. And it's the best thing you will ever have, <laughs> especially during winter. That's amazing. I thought you were going to say chilies, but you said cheese. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Amazing. spices in Ecuador. I love that. So, okay. On the same topic, what is your last meal on earth going to be? If I'm on death row and they come and they're like, okay, your last meal... It's going to be probably again, it has to be some kind of um, childhood soup, sopa. You know, we grew up with lots of sopas in the highlands in, in Quito. So um, I think it would be um, a locro, locro de papas is a, is a potato based soup with cheese again, cheese and avocado, maybe some um, empanada de viento, which is um, translates to wind empanada, which is a uh, Cheese again. It's cheese again. It's a cheese empanada. What's up with me? Cheese. cheese. <laughs> Good. So do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? Yeah, of course I do have a morning routine and it's the very, um, it's what frames my day. What is non-negotiable is generally the first moments where I have a little bit of gratitude. I put both my feet on the ground and I say a little prayer and I have to scrape my tongue and wash my face in cold water. That is nothing can happen before I do that. And then uh, depending, uh, you know, the, the morning routine is always fluid and it depends on how much time I have. But I think movement is the non-negotiable. I think I, I have to do a little bit of yoga or some stretches or something, but um, movement, definitely. Tell us about a person who inspires you and why. I was very uh, lucky. I'm very lucky to come from a long lineage of incredible women, grandmothers and grand aunts. And I had this aunt who was the most incredible human being. This lady, her name is Piki, was Piki. And she was just a Renaissance woman, a phenomenon, a talent of 
wisdom and wit. And uh, she was a renowned cook. She taught all the ladies of high society in Quito how to cook. And she uh, played the piano and she was devoted to her religion, but never preachy. She was an artist. She made the most beautiful dolls and she sung and she, she was incredible. She never married. She never had kids. She probably, that's why she was able to channel her energy being so creative and kind and loving. And I remember her dearly and she comes to me in dreams very often. And she's probably like one of my biggest inspirations, a simple one, just an aunt <laughs> that gave me so much. What are you reading right now? Or what is a book that you would recommend about plant medicine or anything that you feel like is one that you go back to and you, it would be helpful for the audience? Um, so much. I love to read. Right now, I'm reading Gabor Mate's The Myth of Normal. Mm. Amazing. I'm blown away. I'm also reading um, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wallen. That's also really good. So they're both about trauma. But what would I recommend people to read as far as... Carlos Castaneda are great reads. <laughs> the Teachings of Don Juan. That's a beautiful book. Yeah. Thank you. So we'll include those in the show notes for people listening so they can see those books' names and, and find them if they want. Oh, great. So what's one thing that's bringing you joy right now in your life? Probably my daughters right now. The simple thing, I think that we are in a very sweet spot right now, a sweet space where we're getting along nicely. I hope I'm not jinxing it by saying <laughs> this, <laughs> but I think they're kind of both in in a transition, one is in almost her tweens and the other one in her teens. And I'm just looking at them blossoming so beautifully. And motherhood is not easy, you know, it's mm. not like it's always flowers and birds singing. <laughs> but lately, it's been really nice to see them. And it makes me so happy to just observe them and listen to them. And so we are in a good moment with them. So that's bringing me a lot of joy. Just my daughters right now. Yeah. I love that. And that really dovetails into my last question, which is how can people connect with you online and your company, your business is named after your girls, right? Yes, it is. Yes. And um, I was thinking because yeah, my business is me and Lily Ayurveda. And I'm thinking how much longer will they allow me to <laughs> keep the name? <laughs> but yeah, you can find me on my website. Um, meandlily.com. You can book uh, consultations there. Uh, you can join my retreats through my website. And that's a wonderful thing because we have a um, number of dates for next year. January, May and September, we're going to have gatherings here in California. You can also find me on Instagram. I have a newsletter you can subscribe to. So yeah, many ways. Awesome. So we'll put the details also in the show notes so you can find... Adela online in those different places. So thank you so much for being here with me. This has been a lovely conversation. Of course, Paula. Thank you. It was super fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Mm-hmm.